Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here today with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. Now, today, as we record this, it's MLK Day, which used to be they combined President's Day or something. There used to be a Washington Day and a Lincoln Day or something like that, and they now created a President's Day so we can have MLK Day. Maybe I'm wrong about all of that, but I do want our audience to know what I just realized this morning, because I, I think about Lincoln all the time, and I was thinking about Lincoln this morning and doing some Lincoln stuff. Andy, you have Abraham Lincoln's initials. <laughs> yes, and he has mine. <laughs> Okay, well, so whose initials do you have, Akil? I don't know of anyone's, but um, maybe our audience can uh, help fill in that gap. Right, okay. Um, So it's been about, what, almost two weeks since our last episode, and that's because we did an extra episode on the speaker race, uh, which is now behind us. Um, And at that time, we also talked about uh, George Santos a little bit, and uh, so new stuff is coming out on that every day. And uh, I think, you know, more to come there. Uh, oh, my goodness. Yes. And and the Wash Post had a, an amazing piece this morning by a former student of mine. I'm very proud of him. He's in the Bob Woodward tradition. Isaac Stanley Becker, his mother, is a very famous and distinguished historian, especially of the antebellum era and of the anti-slavery movement. Amy Drew Stanley at the University of Chicago. And in the small world department, Isaac is a uh, graduate of Yale College. He took a a class with me. He was editor-in-chief of the Yale Daily News and a Bob Woodward protege. And in the Bob Woodward tradition, very, very proud of him. And, of course, Bob is a great friend of the podcast. Uh, Isaac is following the money. And it turns out that the Santos story is, you can't make this stuff up. Yes, it's, it's even more intricate than we thought because it's possible he's being funded by very shadowy folks from uh, Russia with ties to Putin and the oligarchs. So we like to cover things in the news because things that happen tend to reveal constitutional questions. Right. And Andy, here's what we do that I mean, because listen, we are respectful of our audience. We know you have all sorts of choices. And I want to tell you at the beginning of this episode why we should be your choice if you're if you're just tuning in, because constitutional law is very broad. And I claim to be among the very few people truthfully living today who can give you one stop shopping across the entire array of constitutional law. So let's just take some of our recent episodes. We've done a lot on the Supreme Court and the biggest issues now pending before the Supreme Court, which include, of course, affirmative action in the independent state legislature doctrine. And in that second one, we not only had lots of episodes, some of which were based on our Andes and my experience at the oral arguments itself, sitting in the courtroom, but also reflect the special expertise that Andy, you and I, and uh, some of our guests have have brought on the issue. And I say we because Andy was a big part of it, along with Chris Duggan and Steve Calabresi and Vic Amar and Steve and, and Vic have, of course, been on the podcast as guests multiple times. We filed an amicus brief in that case, and we will see if that amicus brief uh, turns out to be significant or not in any of the opinions, I'm cautiously optimistic it will be. So we gave you, a un- the audience, a unique perspective, a special perspective, a genuinely expert perspective on that case, which is one of the biggest cases of the term, and the affirmative action cases, which also reflect 
things that I've written on the topic in this, in that case, along with the great Neil Katyal, who's been a podcast guest and who was one of the leading oral advocates in the ISL case. So on both affirmative action and independent state legislature, if you've been part of this podcast community, you've had a front row seat to the biggest issues before the Supreme Court. Then more recently, you know, a lot of action shifted across the street from the Supreme Court building, one first street to uh, the Capitol building. And we gave you again, a front row seat on all sorts of issues implicated by the Speaker of the House contest. And we gave you a lot of historical perspective that frankly, you're not going to get anywhere else uh, about previous speaker contests and, and what's going on and all the rest. And we connected it even to presidential succession issues as we explained in our very first episodes, the speaker shouldn't be actually in the line of succession and their reasons why, in part because there are lots of times when you don't have a speaker and we connected. We also talked about the less focused on interesting developments in the Senate with Diane Feinstein renouncing her customary entitlement as the senior most senator in the majority to to be the honorific president pro tem and and she she opted not to do that good for her um, Ms. patty murray we talked about the constitutional and and political significance of that because because lots of people were talking about george santos and kevin mccarthy and congress so we gave you a front row seat to the supreme court then we gave you a front row seat intellectually speaking to congress now, today we're going to actually shift the scene because there's another big story. It, it implicates constitutional law in all sorts of ways. It implicates the criminal procedure portions of constitutional law. And there's almost no one, Andy, I'm being straight, who teaches con law and criminal procedure and a course called federal courts. And the ISL case involved in part the relation between state courts and federal courts and state law and, and federal law. So there are about four or five people, I, I believe, really, who, who teach and write in crim, pro, and con law. That's about it. The people who teach con law don't teach crim, pro. The people who teach crim, pro don't teach con law. And even if they teach it, they don't write in these fields. And I claim to do all of that. My first book is actually called The Constitution and Criminal Procedure, First Principles. And we're going to talk about some of that, but we're going to do so in the context of a genuinely hot topic, a, a timely issue, something in the news. And that's what we're going to try to offer again and again, and we think we have offered again and again in this podcast, is uh, placing stuff that's in the news in a broader scholarly and sometimes historical as well as legal context. And of course, you, your expertise is called upon by other people. So you appeared um, on, on MSNBC um, the other day, actually yesterday, by our our calendar, um, not the podcast calendar, on the uh, Ali Velshi show on on MSNBC to talk about the Electoral College, another issue that you've written about quite a bit. Uh, with Vic um, on things like the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, and Ali is such a sweetie. And thank you, Ali, for uh, allowing me to talk about that. And I did try try to talk about both sides of Electoral College reform, the pro, the pro and the con, and. 
Andy, this is all again connected to our podcast community because I reconnected with Ali in part because of Jeff Rosen, who is in the small world department, Neil Katyal's brother-in-law. And our audience has heard some of those stories. He's also the president of the National Constitution Center, one of my favorite students of all time. And though I, I reconnected recently with Ali at a National Constitution Center event uh, sponsored by, by Jeff. And he actually said, hey, you know, let's get you on the show. And I said, oh, I'd love to do it. Andy, do we have a a link to the streaming video that we can make available to the uh, podcast audience? Well, so the best, the easiest way to check it out is to go to our Instagram. um, Um, I I have no idea what Instagram is, but you're about to tell me. (laughs) Well, I'm very, very 20th century. Well, the bad news is that it's owned by Facebook. But the, the good news is that it's a it's still useful. Um, and it's it's a place where people, instead of posting comments, instead post images. So either video or uh, photos, and then they have you know they caption them. So it's a, it's basically a visual way of sharing information. Oh, that's why you've made me do this video thing um, uh, when we because it's been an audio podcast. But Andy now is insisting that we 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 do it um, in video. And my wife does love me, but she has reminded me on more than one occasion that I do have a, a face made for radio. Well, the haircuts have been coming more, more, fa- more fast and furious <laughs> than before as a result. And anyway, so yes, please check out America's constitution on Instagram and that, and we have the, uh, we have that video posted there. Really the idea of the Instagram is that we post short video snippets from our podcast. And in this case, from uh, MSNBC, and uh, so it gives you sort of a gateway so you can get a sense of what the podcast is about that week, or even better, if you have a friend that hasn't heard the podcast, you say, hey, you know, check it out, maybe they don't want to invest an hour and a half before they find out whether they like it, so they can just listen listen and watch this little snippet, and then that'll provide them with a link in what they call link in bio to, uh, to, to the podcast itself on Apple Podcasts. So that's what's okay. going on, so that's where you can get it. Okay. okay, I think I almost understood some of that. <laughs> well, if you search for on on Google for Instagram America's Constitution, you'll you'll get there. Okay, um, so that's that's a pretty easy way to do it. So anyway, you were mentioning that there's something in the news, and it's kind of something of a. Uh, I mean, it's it's a horrific event, but it's something of a, of a true crime um, episode. Uh, and I'm sure you've all heard of it, audience in Idaho, the the terrible murder of for college students. Um, Serial murder, mass murder, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just something. Is it a serial um, murder when they take place in one incident? That's a nice question. It wasn't like one explosion. It was four distinct stabbings. That Mm -hmm. And and one thing the prosecutors try to do is slow down time. So you see, because they want you to believe that each action is a deliberate one and you could have stopped but you didn't and then you did a second and you could have stopped but you didn't and you did a third and you could have stopped but you didn't and you did a fourth and and they try to slow down time in a certain way to emphasize that these things are deliberative actions they're choices that you're making and a defense counsel may try to speed it all up and say oh it was just one moment of of insanity or or what have you well also it's it's um different crimes I mean, in other words, you yes. may, they may all be tried at the same trial, but you you'll have a, a charge. And in fact, I you can actually watch the arraignment, um, which uh, on video it's it's out there. So they arrested this 
this individual, and uh, and when uh, Mr. Uh, Koberger, and he was arraigned, and you can watch the arraignment, you can see the the uh, magistrate, I guess, asks uh, the defendant whether he understands that this charge carries a, a penalty of uh, death or life imprisonment if he's found guilty or pleads guilty. And then they d- does the same thing for the next count, the same thing for the next count. Because each murder is its own crime. Um, our audience may recall that we had an earlier episode on double jeopardy, where I talked a little bit about that. Let me let me tell you about it, actually, Andy. This is not what we were planning to do, but, but since I am a crim pro junkie guru, there's a very famous case, and I've actually elaborated. I, I offered a, an important pro-defendant, criminal defendant reform. It's a case called Ash versus Swenson. And, and here are the facts. The facts are that there's a regular poker game um, in a basement with the same, I think, six people, basically, every Friday night or Saturday night. And one day, someone breaks into the, I think it's held down in the basement or the man cave. If I'm getting the facts wrong, it's just ever so slightly, but just uh, the gist of it is, is accurate. And someone wearing a mask actually breaks in to the poker game and robs everyone around the table. And the person is prosecuted for robbing one of the six and is acquitted. And his defense is mistaken identity. I wasn't there. It's someone else. And then the prosecutor reinitiates a charge because they realize, oh, this was a hole in our case and that one. And they do some more investigation. They plug up the holes. And now they charge him for robbing a second person around the table. And they say, just as you were talking about, well, it's actually a distinct offense. There were six. This was not one crime. This was six crimes. The assailant, the, 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 the perpetrator robbed six different people. Now, you know, in, in the same transaction, but six different, that's six separate crimes. And yes, for when it comes to sentencing or something, these actually, if it, if it all been tried in one case, you could have had six convictions and cumulative punishment. You know, let's imagine each one five years. So that would be 30 years. Okay. Cause there's six different offenses. So the prosecutor says, well, since if we had one trial and I got convictions on all of them, I could have aggregated and gotten 30 years. Why can't I bring it six different in six different prosecutions? And if I win each one, that's 30 years. And the court says, yes, but you didn't win the first time you lost and you lost necessarily given the nature of the defense on a theory that it was someone else. And if a person was acquitted in the first trial, because it was someone else, he couldn't have been the perpetrator for crimes two, three, four, five, and six. And so because of a thing, and Andy, you know this because you know a lot of law because of a thing called collateral estoppel. And, and if you want a really fancy way of putting it, this is, you know, non-mutual offensive collateral estoppel. I'll explain each of those words in a minute. The defendant actually walks free. Here's what collateral estoppel means, that a certain contested issue in a lawsuit was already decided in an earlier case, in a collateral case. Estoppel means that the losing party is prevented, is stopped, is not allowed to make certain assertions because of 
a collateral proceeding in, in which that issue of fact was determined against a litigant. So that's collateral estoppel. What's offensive collateral estoppel? Well, well one party sort of affir- uses this kind of more of a sword than a shield. Maybe this is actually defensive collateral estoppel. So let me just, uh, but here's what makes it non-mutual. If the government had won in the first case, won a prosecution, they would have had to prove the robbery all over again in the second. They wouldn't have just simply been able to say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you've already proved this is the guy who did it for victim one. Now all you have to decide is whether victim two actually money was taken from victim two, because obviously it was the same. So no, you don't get, you have to prove every element all over again. But the defendant wins once they win altogether. So that's actually not symmetric. It's not mutual. The government actually has to prove it all over again. If they win, the defendant, if he wins, she wins, doesn't have to prove it all over again. Now, what's my contribution? My contribution, because the court has mushed all this together and they're saying actually it's all just double jeopardy. No, their double jeopardy distinguishes between two pleas. Autrefois acquit, autrefois convict. This is law French. Autrefois means otherwise. The, the doctrine treats previous acquittals and previous convictions as sort of symmetric for double jeopardy purposes. And I think, no, they're not symmetric. Okay. It's about innocence protection. And if you've won before, that's different, the defendant, that's different than if you lost before and you've been determined to be a villain, a wrongdoer. One of the reasons we have double jeopardy is to pr- protect Innocent people from possibly being erroneously convicted because if the government can keep coming at me again and again and again, and every time it loses, it just disregards that. Well, you know, you play with something long enough, it will break. You, you have enough trials. You're going to get one where the, where it, re- it results just in a faulty outcome. If you can just do it a gazillion times, just one outliers. And if the government can say, ah, oh, we'll keep that one. We'll disregard all the ones we lost. You know, heads we win, tails let's play again. Um, well, What's then interesting a, about that is that that's a recognition that this is not a flawless process. It's not. That's okay. A, so that's um, like the so, difference between reasonable doubt and no doubt, for example. Exactly so, because it is a human process. So here's what, what I, I say. Once you've been acquitted, you know, you're done. If you had been convicted, you actually, he could have been tried. So, so the court, in effect, is saying this is the same offense for victim two, as for victim one, I'm saying, no, it's actually not. It's a different offense because if he had been convicted the first time, it would have been perfectly okay, perhaps, to, to have a second trial with a second conviction and a, a second sentence added cumulatively. Now, maybe the prosecutor would need to explain why he didn't do it all at once. And now I'm getting, you know, into deep into technicalities, but because these different offenses arose from, quote, a common nucleus of operative fact, the same transaction, which is a, a phrase used in, in, in civil procedure. There are circumstances in which a prosecutor could say, we chose to separate these prosecutions for good reasons. Maybe we, there were um, different witnesses or, or something. But if ASH stands for the proposition, it's the same offense for double jeopardy purposes, then even if they'd gotten a conviction, they couldn't re-prosecute for the second victim, but they can. Acquittals are different than convictions. This is Amar. They're not symmetric. Now, here's the point. I believe in defendant protection, and if Ash is going to be meaningful, here's, though, a point. 
we need to know why you won the first case. In Ash, it was really simple because there was only one defense, mistaken identity, I was somewhere else, it was some other person. But in another case, you could imagine that the the first acquittal was based on a different ground. Then the uh, judgment of acquittal didn't necessarily resolve a certain issue in, a factual issue in defendant's favor. And if so, um, Ash is not going to be useful for defendant. So here's the suggestion that I proposed. Um, there's also a note in the Pennsylvania Law Review, a student note, that had proposed this as well quite independently. Once the defendant wins a case and wins an acquittal, the jury should be invited but not required at the invitation of defense counsel and only defense counsel to tell us why they did it. A jury can acquit for no reason at all, jury nullification. And prosecutors can't ask them, judges can't you know, force them to d- disclose stuff. But if they've sided with the defendant, I want to give the defendant, defense counsel, and the jury an opportunity to explain why they did it. And when you say and did if it, they, you mean acquitted the... Acquitted, uh, yeah. yes. Yeah. And, if they, uh, and what issues, if at all factual issues they resolved in the defendant's favor. And I want that on the record in the first case, if the criminal defense lawyer asked that only after the acquittal has issued, precisely so that Ash versus Swenson can be a more robust protection for innocent defendants in future litigation. I know that was very long, but, and, and I know we're getting a little bit of a tangent, but, but, but it all began. Is this one crime or four? It's four crimes. There are four victims. In Ash versus Swenson, there were six victims around that poker table. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And here they're, you know, in different rooms and things like that. And, but different victims is the most important thing Mm -hmm. because I'm a victim's rights person and I take each victim seriously. And there were four different people, human beings whose life was extinguished. I don't say by whom yet. That's what the trial will determine. And each one had a life um, and a life plan and a family and loved ones. And of course, we have to teach, take each one of those victims very seriously. This is what the audience is going to hear more about why I actually am a believer in, in uh, innocence protection and the truth school, but I don't like guilty people getting off on crummy technicalities that have nothing to do, in my view, with a truth seeking or innocence protection or some other um, um, broader democratic themes of the Constitution. If someone's going to get off, I need to be able to explain to Aunt Josephine or Uncle Fred you know, who didn't go to law school, why, you know, the Constitution really requires that result and why they should believe that. So so you say that, okay, so there are four crimes because there's four, you know, victims. Um, yes. I mean, in this case, you could say, well, he went to one room and he stabbed this person. Then he went to another room and he stabbed that person. So that's pretty clearly, you know, separate, or at least it seems to be separate. Um, what you're saying then is if he plants a bomb and it kills all the people at once, it's one act, but still four crimes. It depends on how a legislature has chosen to define a crime or um, in states there are uh, common law crimes that are defined by judges, but it depends, on, it depends always on what the elements of the offense are as defined by the, the lawmaking, if you will, body that creates the crime. And, and this is relevant now to Moore versus Harper, 
judges are allowed in state courts to be lawmakers of a certain sort. They identify crimes. And in, when this is why the idea that a, a judge could be a, a lawmaker of a certain sort is a very deep and obvious one, um, even though people like Justice Gorsuch seem to bridle at the idea that judges could be legislatures of a certain sort, because they are. And and you learn that in in the first year of law school when you take crim law and you are taught that there are state common law offenses. It's not a federal common law of crimes, but there are state common law offenses. And either the legislature in a statute or a court in a judicial opinion will define what the elements of the crime are. And they could choose to say one bomb, one crime, or they could choose to say one bomb, 30 crimes if 30 people died. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, that's completely up to the lawmaking body to decide. So one of the things about criminal procedures, you come up with, you know, all of these hypotheticals. And, and of course, there are, then there are actually cases that take place that, that show why you've thought about these hypotheticals. And here we have right. this actual case in Idaho. And a lot, of course, there hasn't been a trial yet. Um, all there's been is the arraignment. And, and, and even that, I think, was, on, was really a, more of a hearing on extradition. So look, on that, Andy, I'm going to, for the people who aren't law trained, going to tell them what they may have thought is wrong. Here's what they may have thought. You're innocent until proved guilty. No, you're not. The minute you commit the crime, you are guilty from a God's eye point of view. And the legal term, the legal phrase is not innocent until proved guilty guilty. It's a far more nuanced one. It's presumed innocent until proved guilty. And it's presumed innocent for certain purposes, but not for other purposes. So you're right. He hasn't been found guilty yet, the defendant, but he has already actually lost his liberty. He's in prison. He was in handcuffs and you aren't and I'm not. So he's being treated differently from almost everyone else in America. And he is so before he's been proved guilty beyond reasonable doubt by a jury of his peers, 12 persons and all, all the rest. And that's because, yes, he got certain procedure, not all the procedure, but enough procedure to hold him pre-trial. And in this case, without bail. So there has to be a standard that the government has to meet in order to deprive him of this much liberty. He hasn't been Correct. deprived of all, all of his liberty yet, you know, in Correct. a sense. But, but, and, no, but, and, so and they we have can to talk meet a, some standard of, you know, right. to get an arrest warrant right. or, or hey, right. maybe has to, maybe the government, you know, might have to satisfy a writ of habeas corpus or something like that um, if they're just holding him in the jail, you know, in order to show that they, they're... They have to show their justification, which is typically going to be probable cause not reasonable doubt, to believe that he's committed a crime. That's enough to force him uniquely in the world to come to court because they're not forcing me to come to court. They're not forcing you to come to court. So it's a lower standard to just be, to have to show up. And that's probable cause to believe that you've committed the crime. But the point is it's not no standard. It is. It's not. Okay, there's process. But if you were completely innocent in every in every relevant respect until proved guilty, he has not been proved guilty. Okay, yeah, but 
He has not been treated improperly. So you are presumed innocent for, for certain purposes until proved guilty. But it's not just that he had to show up. He's incarcerated. He's de- being denied, in effect, bail. And uh, SBF got bail. Um, he had to put up a bond of a certain sort, uh, Samuel uh, Bankman uh, freed. So um, now, why is this person not being allowed to post bail? And, and it's possible, I actually haven't, um, Andy, you've investigated this more carefully, uh, more recently, that bail was just set at an impossibly no, high um, amount. No yeah, and that makes sense, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. Okay, so I'll tell you what the purpose of bail is. The purpose of bail is to make sure that you show up for trial. And in certain unusual cases, to make sure that until the trial happens, you don't try to bribe the um, would-be jurors or intimidate people to make sure it's a fair trial. And I would say it is also, although the courts are not always as clear about this as they should be, to make sure that you don't commit another crime. And between, if you're a serial uh, criminal of a certain sort, between now and your future trial date. But here's the point. You and I don't have to show up and post bond uh, against the likelihood that we're going to commit some crime in the future. You see, people who are already arrested, when you have to meet a certain standard of, of probable cause, are treated differently than the rest of us. They have to post a bond. Even if they're, if they're allowed bail, they, they have to show up and, and maybe post a bond. And the bond is in part about, you know, against the possibility that they're going to commit a future crime and, and that they don't do that to you. That's because there's probable cause to believe you've already done this. You are not innocent in every respect, even within the legal system, until proved guilty. I'll tell you what the phrase does mean. When the court, the trial begins, um, the government will have the burden of proof. It will have to prove things beyond a reasonable doubt. And the charge against him, the indictment or the, you know, the claims against them are no evidence whatsoever such that if the jury has to decide in the first nanosecond, it must, as a matter of law, acquit, because actually you're presumed innocent and the charge against you is no evidence whatsoever, and there's proof beyond reasonable doubt. Having so the, said fact all that, that so they had, the fact that they had probable cause to arrest you is not is evidence no, of your guilt is in no the trial. no evidence whatsoever. That what so now, actually, our audience might be learning something. Oh, now I actually know the technical meaning of presumed. It's not innocent until proved guilty. Is you know presumed innocent, innocent, and that's for the judicial system itself, and only for in effect the trial, because the judicial system is allowed to treat you differently when it comes to ba- post having to post bail and and maybe even deny you bail. I'm going to say a little bit more about bail in, in just a moment. So even. But here's what's definitely true. From a God's eye point of view, no, you're guilty as soon as you did the crime. That's, that's when guilt attaches. Otherwise, the trial, if we thought otherwise, I mean, we, we get it all backwards. We'd be thinking that trials make people guilty. No, they don't. They find people guilty because there's an antecedent fact of the matter. And if you really were innocent until proved guilty, I couldn't go around saying, you know, that OJ did it and OJ did it. And I was allowed to say that even, you know, before he was tried and even after he was acquitted because he did it, damn it. Now, if I might need to say to, in order to avoid um, a slander suit or if it were in print, a libel action, he has not yet been proved guilty or he was acquitted. Okay. But I can still say 
that said, he did it. Maybe it hadn't been proved beyond reasonable doubt to a unanimous jury that he did it, but he still did it. And, and that's especially true if some of the evidence was suppressed because of the exclusionary rule or something else. He, he either did it or he didn't do it from a God's eye point of view. But we have to have special rules for courtrooms. And that's what presumption of innocence is especially about. You are permitted in America. It's not utterly un-American to say that someone is guilty before they've been proved guilty because they're not just to be free, being very, very strict about our words and our thoughts. It really isn't the case that you're innocent until proved guilty. So what's bail all about? Bail is in part about making sure you show up. And if it's a capital crime, but your life hangs in the balance, you're more likely to, to flee the jurisdiction. Well, and in this case, this, this was an extradition proceeding. So, you know, if they're going to extradite you, you know, well, talk let, about let, a likelihood that you're going to run. You know, about well, let's, to, just, yeah. let's just compare Sam Bankman-Fried to this. There are about four or five things, well, and, and I'll give you what a critic of the system would say. So let's just compare these two. But one is bail is about making sure that you show up. Because actually there is probable cause to believe that you did it. We've already, and the more, the more evidence there is that you did it. And this goes all the way back to the very first federal statutes passed by the first Congress. You can be denied bail where, quote, the presumption is great. I believe that's a direct quote. I'd have to triple check from the first Congress where the presumption is great, meaning we not only have probable cause, we have, you know, the equivalent of video evidence or something. We have 50 eyewitnesses. We have you dead twice. We haven't proved it in a court to a jury beyond reasonable doubt. But there's very great reason to believe that you've done it. And we have a hearing in which the government can actually show that to the judge or the magistrate who's deciding whether to hold you without bail. So that goes to the he, likelihood that you will flee. If, if you know, if there's a ton of evidence against you, then you're more likely to flee than if, you know, you realize this is, a, this is you know, much of a case. And they're, you're, they're you're, get off. you're right. You're right. Okay, it goes to several points. If it's a capital offense, you're more likely to flee. If the evidence is very great against you, you're more likely to flee because you're going to be found guilty. Okay. But it's also more likely that you did it. And even if it were 100% clear that you'd show up for trial, if we think that because you did it, and it might depend on the kind of crime that you committed, that you're a threat to commit future crimes before, you'll show up for trial, but in the meantime, you're going to kill three other people, okay? It's not just about the likelihood of getting conviction. It's because you did one wrong thing. There's already lots of evidence to believe you did one wrong thing. We treat you differently than other folks, in general, there's not preventive detention. We don't actually, I know there was a, a movie about this. I think it starred Tom Cruise or something about the crimes that you were, you know, likely to commit. Minority um, Report. It was called, what was it called? Minority, Minority Report. Report. Yeah. Okay. So, but our criminal justice system generally believes in free will. You know, people can entertain all sorts of fantasies and dreams and murderous thoughts and all the rest, but we do not interfere if if they've only thought about things. We actually wait for them to do a bad act. And once they've done a bad act, even before they've been proved guilty beyond reasonable doubt of having done a bad act, we can treat them very differently. But we don't just lock you up because of your thought crimes. People in communist China do that. And maybe Russia, but we don't do that here. So, but once you have done something, it's not just we want you to show up to make sure that we can adjudicate that. We want to prevent you from committing interim crimes in, in the interim. And we're worried if, if there's any evidence to believe that, that you're a witness tamperer 
or a jury, bri- juror briber, and it's going to be easier for you to do that if you're at liberty rather than in the pokey. Those are also reasons we could deny you bail. Now, once you understand all of that, let's go through SPF well, before versus. We, before, well, yeah. So, so one thing that on that, you know, um, yes, we want you. To, we don't want you to flee, so we lock you up so you don't flee. But we can also possibly ensure against your fleeing without locking you up. Well, today we, we have yeah. all sorts of devices like ankle bracelets and the rest. But that's why I said it's not just about making sure that you show up at trial. It's about making sure you do not commit interim crimes. Mm-hmm. And that's why I keep insisting courts don't always emphasize that. But I do because there is evidence. Maybe there's abundant evidence even though you haven't been yet proved guilty to believe that you actually did it. And certain kinds of crimes, if you did it, maybe there's reason to think that you're likely to do it again. This is not true of all crimes, but certain kinds of crimes are of that sort. So now, why is Samuel Bankman-Fried not rotting in a cell and this person is being held in detention? A critic would say, because Samuel Bankman-Fried has money and his parents have money, and he's well-connected. And a certain kind of cynic would say, you know, this just shows the justice system in America treats poor and lower middle-class defendants different from wealthy graduates of MIT. And we could talk about the Theranos defendant, Elizabeth Holmes. So that's what a certain kind of critic would say. And I would say, you may be right, but here are some other things to consider. One is... Samuel Bankman-Fried actually did not contest extradition. He agreed to it. He apparently wants to clear his name. You know, A second thing that the judge said is he's very recognizable and it's going to be difficult for him to flee. A third thing that the judge said, we're taking away his passports, so he, he can't leave the country. A fourth thing that the judge said is he has to stay at home and his parents, even though he's you know, fully an adult, are going to be monitoring him. And they've actually, if he doesn't show up at any of these things, they will lose their home. And they stand as sureties, giving assurance of his presence. And yes, he's also been obliged to give up his control of his some of these corporations. So he's not going to be able to continue to commit financial misdeeds if he did indeed commit earlier financial misdeeds. So they're trying to make sure he can't commit interim offenses. So now how about the other case? Well, it's a capital offense. So it's, you know, and um, and he's been trying to avoid detection in various ways, scrubbing down the car, changing license plates on on the car, doing all sorts of things after the crime that seem a little suspicious. He may not be able, just psychologically, the kind of person who did this may not actually be able to conform his conduct to the law in a certain way. He might actually have a mental illness, defense, or all the rest. And that's where the free will presuppositions that generally govern the system may not quite obtain. They're really, you know, someone who does this might not be able to to stop the voices that are telling him to to do stuff like this. We we just don't know, but but that's a genuine risk here. That's not true of all crimes. It's not even true of all murders. Not all murders are this kind of murder where you might be dealing with a kind of person that unlike the rest of us isn't generally able to damp down the weird voices in his head. Well, I think you know, you got some some problems there. I mean, first of all, there is such a thing as a competency hearing. So um, 
So that's a different question. No, whether you're competent to stand trial I understand. is there three. There are at least three different issues. Let's, let's mm-hmm. disentangle them. One, whether you're competent to stand trial. That's about your mental state right now. A second is whether when you did the crime, you were insane or not, which they're different tests, but you know, one is, were you, did you understand the wrongness of your action and were you able to conform? Did you make a choice? A third issue, so that's different than what your mental status is now and whether you understand what, what's happening at the trial. And yet a third issue is between where you were when you commit, when you did certain acts, and the trial that's about to, you know, that still hasn't happened yet. Are you a genuine risk to recidivate in, in various ways? Those are three different issues, all of which involve judicial inquiries into, you know, what kind of mind you have and, um, and, and, and how that op- operates in, in the world. But those are three different issues. Well, what I was getting at there, um, here I actually do know a little something. Just because you do, um, I did. As, Unfortunately, as, as a physician, okay. I did a forensic psychiatry uh, rotation. Yes. But anyway, okay, uh, yeah. So in New York, anyway, the standard, this is the Marshall McLuhan moment. Yes, the <laughs> okay. standard on on uh, whether you're competent to stand trial is you have to yes. understand the nature of the charges against you yes. and be able to assist right. in your own defense. Correct. So you're, that's that is actually that's the test for competence to trial, which is different than when you com, when you did certain actions, did you understand that they were wrong and were you able to conform your 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 conduct to to the law? Well, I think um, the and danger- there are different rules. One thing is called the McNaughton test. I, th- you know, this is like deep into to bar review stuff, but mm-hmm. but but that's a different question. You know, wh- wh- who were you and what were you thinking or not um, when you when your body committed certain, uh, moved in certain ways from, uh, are you going to be able to, to understand what's happening at the trial and, and, and assist in your own defense? But um, the other thing is, I think what you want to avoid with these different standards is a certain level of arbitrariness um, where the judge's own, you know, prejudices or, or attitudes, uh, you know, affect what's going on more than they should rather than the facts and the law. So, so an example of that, um, is I think if you are making your decisions mostly based on the crime rather than on the evidence. So um, it, one of the things that I did on this this forensic psychiatry rotation was I visited a hospital where people had been found not guilty by reason of you know mental defect or whatever they called it at the time. It was thirty years ago. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, and so these are people. They 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 did something. They stood they stood trial and. You know, generally it was found, yes, they did it, but they they had some mental disease and that's what caused them to do it. So the thing about this ward, which was fascinating, was every single person in that ward had committed the same crime. They killed their mother. Every single one of them. So so and but here's and, and here's and, and but here's the thing. If you were of sound mind and body, then you did an evil act. And we can punish you even if you're deeply remorseful and no threat to anyone else other than your mother. You know, maybe right. it's just, you know, an issue with your mother. But so we can punish someone for retributive reasons, even if, again, you're, you're unlikely to recidivate contrarywise. If you did the same thing, but it was not an evil action, you actually thought you were slicing into a filet mignon, but you are actually slicing into, you know, another human being. You, you were just suffering a, a, a delusion, a hallucination, maybe because of nothing that you did yourself that was wrong. Maybe someone slipped you a drug. 
that, you, you know, involuntarily was mind altering. You did the same act, but it was not an evil act. Because criminal law is about what you did, your actus reus, but also what your mental state is, your mens rea. So if you did the exact same thing of ending the life of your mother, and to outside observer, it looked rather similar. But once we actually investigate, it was not an evil action that you understood yourself to be doing, but just you were hallucinating because someone slipped you a drug, maybe even inadvertently. Then... Once the drug has, you have a, an insanity defense, but here's the point. If you're no longer insane, because the effects of the drug have worn off, we have to let you go immediately, okay? Because the logic of your incarceration, your detention is very different. If it's a punishment for a past bad act, we can hold you forever, even if you're old and toothless and you found religion and you're actually the, you know, the most lovely person imaginable, but we can still hold you on retributive grounds because you committed knowingly an evil act. Contrarywise, if you were insane at the moment you did it, not criminally responsible, and you're no longer so, we have to let you go. So there's a different logic of incarceration in those two different situations. Well, that's exactly right, which is why I'm making this point. Now, you can't, you know, you can't quite say, well, just because these people all did the same crime, that everyone that committed this crime got this sentence you know but it's certainly suspicious that that it looks like they're trying the what the the name of the crime you killed your mother you know rather than the details that you're talking about and i would worry about that in terms of bail that the, the the judges know that much about what happened um at that point and um so that so and i think this case is a is a good example in a way because there's no way this guy's getting bail. No way. No matter what the circumstances are, there's no way he's getting bail, right? We know that. You know, so that um, so one has to wonder about about. Well, I would say that's because the nature of the crime is such that um, that whoever did this, even if it was four different people who did this, but whoever did this, we are not being unfair and thinking. We have seen crimes like this before, and we actually know that people who do crimes like this before are often recidivists. What the people in Pennsylvania are doing right now is combing through unsolved murders in this guy's hometown. He's a guy from Pennsylvania who was studying in Washington State across the state line from Idaho. He's a student at a university that's like 12 miles away from the university where these horrendous, horrific crimes occurred. But the, but he was arrested in Pennsylvania with evidence found in Pennsylvania, which we're about to, which we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about all sorts of Fourth Amendment issues in this episode, both Fourth Amendment on the right side and on the remedy slash exclusionary rule side. Pennsylvania officials right now, I'm quite sure, are trying to look at crimes, maybe unsolved crimes in his hometown that fit the, as it were, the, you know, the profile of this kind of serial killer, right? mass murderer. Yeah, I mean, I think the argument can be made that it's precisely because we don't know all the facts surrounding the crime that we need to incarcerate him for now, because, you know, we, we just don't know enough to say that it's safe for the public to have right. him but we large. but we also we have lots of evidence and we're going to talk about mm-hmm. some of that and and to me it doesn't matter at all 
how the, if the evidence was acquired lawfully or unlawfully, but to the court system, it will. That's the so-called exclusionary rule. And our audience knows I'm a big critic of the exclusionary rule. I'm also a big fan of other ways of enforcing the Fourth Amendment. And we can talk about that. You know, we've talked about Samuel Bankman Fried. Full disclosure, I know his parents and I hold them in high regard and I send them my very best wishes. Um, but we'll also, since this is MLK Day, we can talk about MLK, who was surveilled in all sorts of ways. So the difference is MLK didn't commit crimes, you see. And if the exclusionary rule is the only game in town, then it's open season on people like MLK. So we're going to talk. So he's another person. So we talked about SBF, you know, but now we can talk. And we talk about these initials, AL, for Abraham Lincoln and Andy Lipka. But we can talk about SBF and MLK as interesting contrasts, comparisons and contrasts to this um, Idaho case. Yeah, maybe we'll talk a little bit about MSG while we're at it. (laughs) Okay, so... um, That's not monosodium glutenate for those of you who are in the audience. Andy is obsessed by Madison Square Garden for reasons that utterly elude me. He's quite into the Rangers or whoever else plays there. the Rangers, yes. Okay, I'm not even sure who does. Okay. No one else matters. So, okay. (laughs) So, all right. So, yeah. So, in a way, we kind of jumped ahead because we were talking about what's what's happened since his arrest, but a lot of things happened before his arrest, yes. which implicate Fourth Amendment and other questions. And, and yes. of course, we have had these episodes before about Fourth Amendment, and, and you've written this article, Fourth Amendment First Principles, which we've posted and we'll post again. But uh, our aim is not to rehash it in, in its entirety, but to sort of see how some of these things apply to an actual case. Yes, and we'll also talk about DNA, um, uh, which I've written about separately from the Fourth Amendment um, First Principles article. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's talk about DNA. So, one, so in the uh, investigation, one of the key pieces of evidence that was found very early on, and it's it's uh, attested to in the affidavit that you can read online from the, I guess it's. Uh, one of the officers, I don't know if it's the arresting officer, but one of the officers involved in the investigation. Um, and they found a, a sheath that, uh, that apparently the murder weapon, it's believed, you know, kind of lived in. And on this sheath were, were, were there was DNA found. Then eventually they accumulated other evidence, uh, the car and, uh, you know, and, through video and things like that, and they they felt that okay, we think this is who it might be, and we we've now located him in Pennsylvania. So they go to the parents' home in his old home in Pennsylvania, and they search through the trash. So they go through the trash and they find DNA uh, that they then match, not to they don't actually match it. They say, okay, we analyze this DNA, and we can, when we compare the DNA to the DNA on the sheath of the knife, there's a 99.999% or something like that uh, chance that there's a parental relationship, actually father-son, I think, because you can tell the, you know, the chromosomes, um, right. between, uh, the, the, so this is father and son, essentially, is what they, is what they found. So... Okay, so can you talk a little bit about some of the the um, issues involved there's, in these? Yes, findings? there's so much just in that that I want to sort of elaborate. I've written a lot about DNA, and I've also said this is an area 
that where I'm most nervous about some of the ideas that I put forth. Change my mind on certain things, on a bunch of other things like ISL, I've just doubled down. DNA, I'm out there, I've taken a certain position. My position is basically um, everyone's DNA should be in a database. Everyone's. The day you're born, they should uh, take a drop of blood and they, they, they do various medical tests on you, but part of it should generate a DNA profile and it should be in a database. And this is really dangerous stuff. And I've, and I may be wrong about all this, but if that were so, if everyone's DNA, because right now the government has DNA from a lot of people, but not everyone. And frankly, the people that they have DNA on are disproportionately poor and black because they're people who've been arrested and convicted of things. And DNA is dangerous in a way that I hadn't fully appreciated when I first started talking about this, because a person's DNA can also be connected to family members in a way that, for example, fingerprints can't be. So DNA is way more dangerous in the hands of a government trying to target MLK, for example. Here's what DNA can prove, Andy. You just mentioned it. Since I said we're going to talk about MLK, the government with DNA could prove that some critic of the government was not, in fact, the father of his wife's child or was in fact the father of someone else's wife's child, you know, or is not the son of, you know, his, his mother's husband. Now, wow, that's explosive stuff. There are some studies that suggest that maybe 5%, maybe even more of people are not in fact the biological children of the person that they believe to be their father. That's, that's a lot. Mama's baby, papa's maybe is the, um, the legal phrase. Now think about the government with this really powerful tool, DNA, able to prove or disprove paternity in very embarrassing ways, you know, to, to go after critics of the government or opponents of the government or things like that. Now here's what I'm about to say. That's already our world. Government has DNA on a bunch of people, just doesn't have DNA on all of us. Right now, using the DNA database and running searches does not always, if they are, if the government has the DNA sample, has the underlying biological sample, it doesn't need any judicial approval to search the DNA and use it for all sorts of purposes. And I think it should. So I think we should have more protection than we, we now have. And the way in which it acquires it is, is, is really, you know, sometimes you know, really quirky, and we're going to talk about that. They surveil you. They want your DNA, and they don't have it yet. So they just surveil you for three weeks. They just watch your every move. You don't even know. And you just, you go to a Starbucks, you know, and you get a, a cup of coffee, and you drop it very properly um, in a waste container on the street. You, you don't just, you know, throw it on the sidewalk. Oh, but they follow you. You abandoned that cup. And that cup is now fair game. They say, they, they said it's not even a search, you know, because you abandoned it or, um, and they take it and now they run a test on it because your saliva is on it. And now they have you in the DNA database. And today, Fourth Amendment doctrine allows them to do all that. I'm not sure it should because, because uh, I think, gee, how it acquired it, we'd have to talk, uh, talk a little bit about that. But, but running the tests on what's already in the government's possession shouldn't be immune from legal scrutiny, but doctrine says, oh, that's not, once you have the cup, it's not a, it's not a search to do a, a DNA test on it or something. Our current system is actually very, very dangerous. I mean, I want more protections against it. But on the other side, they say, gee, lots of people are already in the database. Everyone maybe should be. And if everyone were in the database, we'd all take database security a lot more seriously. But 
if everyone's DNA was in the database, Andy, we would have connected the DNA on the sheath to a certain unique individual months earlier. Now, one hopes that no crimes were committed in the interim, but if they had been, a Mars world would have prevented those crimes, whereas they had to find it this other way. So one thing is going to be, I'm going to talk a little bit more about DNA and its dangerousness, but let's talk more generally about the search. First thing that was done is, yes, they they found a sheath at the scene of the crime. Now, suppose a criminal defense attorney said, well, you know, you had no right to test that sheath. You know, that's someone's property and, and you didn't get a proper, you know, judicial authorization from it. Now they're going to lose that case. Okay. Cause what they're going to say is, you know, that was abandoned property or something. No one in the house claimed it. So it was abandoned. So this is just like you, you toss the coffee cup, you know, into a waste can. They found the DNA of the father because the suspect actually in the middle of the night at 4 a.m. in his boyhood home in Pennsylvania. He didn't know he was being surveilled. And the surveillance under current doctrine doesn't count as a search at all. The government didn't have to have any justification for it. And in this case, they had good reason to be surveilling him. But suppose instead they were surveilling MLK every day, you know, just to find out where he goes and where he sleeps and, you know, if he's engaged in an extramarital affair or whatever. Today, the government does not have to tell you at all why it's stalking someone for months on end, because doctrine doesn't count that as a search. Amar would say that is a search. Usually it's reason, it's often reasonable, but at a certain point it might be unreasonable. Why does doctrine not call that a search? Because it called it a search. Doctrine says, oh, you need probable cause. You need a warrant. Whereas I say, no, you can, it only needs to be reasonable and surveillance can be used to acquire evidence so that you do have probable cause. And so you can get a warrant, but doctrine is all asked backwards on this. I call this the non-search nonsense. When they just say it's not a search at all, I say it's a search to stalk someone or to, to follow them. But if it's just in a small way and because you're, you're doing a criminal investigation, it's often unintrusive and unreasonable. Sorry. If they did it for MLK for weeks at a time just to try to get some political dirt on him, that would be in, in a Mars world unreasonable and unconstitutional. But what they did for this fellow is they were watching him in his home, in his boyhood home. And at 4 a.m., apparently, according to affidavits, he goes out of the home wearing surgical gloves and cleans the car that he's just gone on a cross-country trip with from Washington, Idaho, all the way back to Pennsylvania with his father. He's cleaning out the car meticulously, just, you know, scrubbing it down, putting various items from the car into a trash bag at 4 a.m. with strong chemical agents and all the rest. And then at 4 a.m., taking that closed trash bag and putting it in a neighbor's dumpster. Okay. Now, then they went, found that trash bag, sent it off to Idaho where, for DNA testing and matched, let's say it was a coffee cup or something like that, from the father to the DNA that they found on the sheath at the scene of the crime. So now there are two different searches here, one of the sheath and one of the garbage bag. And in both cases, here's what the government's going to say. They're going to win on this, I, I think. Um, but they're going to say, oh, this is abandoned property. We don't need any justification whatsoever to grab it. And 
and to do a DNA search on it. And I'm thinking, look, the father's privacy was intruded on in a certain way, you know, when they're doing all of this, but the government is just going to say, I think legitimately so, because this was part of a reasonable criminal investigation. So they could get probable cause to get a warrant for other searches and intrusions and all the rest. But doctrine today doesn't give any protection because it says abandoned property. And I don't think that's quite right. So, you know, I just want to alert our audience because we're just sort of assuming that they are familiar with your arguments that uh, about what the Fourth Amendment says, that, that searches need to be reasonable. They don't need to necessarily have probable cause or have a warrant, for example, and you go through a metal detector or have a random stop for drunk driving or something like that. Um, right. So the Fourth and, Amendment's words require in a Mars world and, and textually and to the founders, reasonableness, all searches and seizures have to be reasonable. They don't have to have warrants or probable cause. But doctrine says, oh, they have to have warrants or probable cause. Then doctrine generates a thousand exceptions because none of that's sensible. But but current doctrine treats certain things as not even searches at all, because if they were searches, they'd have to come up with another exception to the warrant requirements and the exclusionary and, and the uh, probable cause requirement. And instead of doing that, they just say, oh, this isn't a search when they're stalking you again forever. And I'm saying, gee, following MLK around wherever he goes is a search. And at a certain point, it's unreasonable because of the duration and intensity and the lack of justification. Whereas here, I would say this is this is a search, but it's utterly reasonable what they're doing here. It's very unintrusive. Now, I want to come back. I want to tell you about a case. It's, it's the most obscure Supreme Court case imaginable. And in my view, it's outrageous. It's a case called Flippo versus West Virginia. And the Supreme Court mindlessly basically lets a murder go. And I want to read some passages from what I wrote about this in the Harvard Law Review. The court decided this per curiam, summarily, without oral argument. They didn't even give a thought to this thing because doctrine is so damn stupid. Can you explain what per curiam means? By the court, it wasn't a signed opinion by any justice. No oral argument of the sort that we saw in the ISL case, Moore versus Harper. No elaborate judicial opinion signed by someone putting his or her name on it. None of that stuff. Just unanimous, automatically reversal. Because there was a murder, and the cops at the murder scene opened up a briefcase and found certain evidence They did so without a warrant, and the court said this was an intrusion, there was no warrant, and so the evidence must be excluded, even though it proved that a guy killed his wife. And they cited to a case, a case that in my view had nothing to do with the case at hand, but the judges have stupid categories. In that other case which they thought was on all fours, and I'm going to actually read you a passage. I think that case wasn't on all fours at all. A cop had been killed, and the police went into crime scene and ripped the place up, You know, because when a cop is killed, other police officers are <laughs> on the warpath, and that's where you have to actually monitor the police very carefully. And this situation was completely different, and I'm going to actually now read a couple pages. Why? Because in a Mars world, even if that sheath that was found 
was claimed to be the property of the defendant or something like that, that hadn't been, you know, permissibly, hadn't been abandoned or something like that. I think that the fact that it occurred in the victim's house is relevant. And, and they have rights too, even if they're dead. You know, they have rights. It took some very provocative positions because the court said, well, you broke into a guy's house and found this briefcase, you know, that implicates him. He killed his wife. I'm saying, yeah, well, in fact, he didn't break in. He called the cops. (laughs) Okay. And um, he said, someone's killed my wife. I said, you didn't break in. And in fact, it wasn't his house. It was a rented cabin and it was a rented cabin in a state park. So the government owned that thing, you know, and they had uh, rights. And even if he had possessory and uh, privacy rights to that house, you know who else did? She did. And she's dead. And if when they arrived, she had one ounce of breath and life in him, she sh- and she had said, find my killer, that would have been her consent. So like, why are we so focused just on the defendant and not the victim? So that's the passage I'm going to read to you. It's about a man killing a woman. A lot of the exclusionary rule cases at the Supreme Court are about men actually maiming women. The feminist in me was really offended by these situations where the, where the, the men on the court were just letting other men get, literally getting away with murder. So I'm going to read you a couple of pages about a case that there's no one else in constitutional law who's ever thought about this case whatsoever because it was a peewee case that was decided, again, without oral argument. Today we'd call this shadow docket or something like that. And the court didn't give a thought to it, and that's because they don't think about constitutional law and why this is utterly outrageous. I'm not sure it viscerally offended them, their sense of justice, the way it viscerally offended mine. And the audience can decide for itself. So let me read just a couple pages. This is from my forward to the Harvard Law Review from the year 2000. This comes out within a few weeks of Bush versus Gore. Uh, but Bush versus Gore is decided actually about a month after this thing uh, comes out in the Harvard Law Review. Okay, so here it's, it's about three pages. The 1999 term started, started on a haunting note. In the first month of its session, and, the fir- and its first significant opinion, the court set aside the conviction of a man who murdered his wife. The court's holding drew little support from the document, that's the Constitution, and the way the court announced its decision was also, is also troubling, with no proper briefing, no chance for Amiki to weigh in. This is going to be the same problem you see as Bush versus Gore, which hasn't happened yet. Amiki, like yours truly, academics, no public oral argument, no signed opinion, no more than a page of analysis, no careful consideration of counter-arguments, no evidence of real collective deliberation, and no recorded dissents. It is the ultimate in Rehnquist court efficiency. But to what end? Okay, so you, you, you see I'm a rhetorician here. The uncontested facts were simple. James Michael Flippo and his wife Cheryl were vacationing in an isolated cabin in a state park. Mr. Flippo called 911 to report that they had been attacked by an intruder wielding a log and a knife. When police arrived, they found Mrs. Flippo dead, her head covered with blood from an apparent bludgeoning. The police took Mr. Flippo to the hospital and proceeded to investigate the crime scene. They found an unlocked briefcase in the cabinet and opened it. It contained photos that seemed to incriminate Mr. Flippo, photos that were ultimately introduced into evidence. A West Virginia jury 
found Mr. Flippo guilty of first-degree murder, and the state sentenced him to life imprisonment. And I'm thinking, this is a Columbo episode. Yes, good, you know, so glad. But the Supreme Court is daft, in my view. The Supreme Court per curiam reversed and remanded, reasoning as follows. A lawful search under the Fourth Amendment requires a warrant, except when it doesn't. And here, the uncontested facts did not apparently qualify as a proper exception. In particular, the trial court made no factual finding that Mr. Flippo had somehow consented to the search of the briefcase and photo. Actual consent would count as a proper exception to the warrant requirement. Absent some special finding of this sort, the warrantless search was unconstitutional, says the court, and its fruits, the photos, should have been suppressed at trial regardless of their relevance and reliability. On remand, the trial courts could sustain the conviction only by making additional finding, factual findings, such as consent, or by determining that the photos clearly made no difference at trial and thus were harmless error. Otherwise, the conviction must be undone. The Flippo case exemplifies how the court has often take a broad, taken a broadly acceptable constitutional text, that's the Fourth Amendment, and turned it into dubious doctrine. The People's Fourth Amendment, as in we the people, condemns unreasonable searches and seizures. Were the cops here unreasonable? Most citizens, I suspect, would say no, but the court says yes, and without a recorded dissent. The People's Constitution contains nothing calling for the exclusion of reliable evidence. Most citizens, I think, shudder at the idea of springing a murderer and bearing the evidence but the court blithely does just that, again, without dissent. On this set of issues, the citizens seem wiser than the justices. The text ratified by the American people, the Fourth Amendment, does not require warrants for all searches and seizures, nor would that be a sensible global requirement. As a matter of history, no one at the founding, no framer, no treatise writer, no judge ever said that intrusions always require warrants, Arrests, for example, are obvious seizures of persons, and that yet they have never required warrants, nor have searches incident to arrest, searches on the high seas, various inspection programs, border searches, or countless other intrusions. At the founding, warrants were seen as dangerous devices in part because they immunized searchers from after-the-fact tort liability and trespass suits that searches might otherwise have brought. So that was just a summary of, Andy, as, as our audience will know, of the Fourth Amendment First Principles articles that we've talked about before. Okay, back to my narrative. Flippo, the Flippo court, declared that the facts of, before the court were squarely controlled by the 1978 case of Mincy versus Arizona. Mincy, in turn, relied on earlier cases that misread the Fourth Amendment's text and history as requiring warrants. Mincy's words and the words of these earlier cases should not be treated as gospel when proved erroneous. I'm saying like, you know, just like Dobbs should disregard Roe if Roe is egregiously erroneous and some of these cases were erroneous. But epistemically, even if some of these cases' words should be discounted, their precise holdings on their facts may still distill important insights. A precedent-sensitive justice might thus recast the cases as follows. True. The text of the amendment does not say that all intrusions require warrants, nor would that be a sensible global requirement. But police departments pose, which did not exist at the founding, pose special threats in today's world, and these threats require special safeguards. 
overzealous cops can overreact with severe consequences for liberty, privacy, property, and equality when a very intrusive and highly discretionary activity, such as choosing to search a person's home, is involved, we should generally, though not always, require the police to get pre-clearance from someone more detached, like a magistrate or judge. Pre-clearance can help prevent police discrimination and abuse of discretion. It can also provide a record of what the police knew before the search. This fact freezing makes it hard, will make it harder for cops to fabricate ex post rationalizations for their intrusions. In exceptional situations where there's a diminished risk of police abuse, where there are strong reasons for bypassing plea clearance, however, even warrantless intrusions may properly be upheld as, un, as, as reasonable. So that's like my recharacterization of, of what the court should say, but don't say. Okay. In general, Homes are really important and home searches are intrusive. And ordinarily, you want a cop, I mean, excuse me, a judge to, to take a look at this. Back to my narrative. Had the Flippo court examined precedent from this perspective, the justices might have seen both Mincy and Flippo in a clearer light. Mincy on its facts was indeed a case of police overreaction. When 10 cops tried to enter Mincy's apartment in a drug bust, Mincy shot and killed one of them. The fallen officer's comrades responded with a four-day search of the apartment, ripping up carpets and seizing hundreds of objects. There are obvious differences as a matter of reasonableness between Mincy's facts and Flippo's. Remember, the court just thought these are exactly the same case, mm-hmm. per curiam. <laughs> Ridiculous. Flippo's search occurred not in his home, but in a cabin owned by the state which surely had his own legitimate interests triggered by a murder on state grounds. In Mincy, the police had already nabbed the suspect. In Flippo, the police had been told that an unknown intruder had come and for all the police knew, might soon return. Perhaps the intruder had been looking for something, maybe in the briefcase, and the cops had good reason to search quickly before the trail went cold. In Mincy, the police themselves initiated the basic encounter, the drug bust. In Flippo, they were responding to a documented 911 call with a verbatim phone transcript of the facts as they knew them before they came on the scene. The facts were frozen and documented in a far more detail than in a typical warrant. Unlike the Mincy cops, the Flippo police were not overreacting to a fallen fallen comrade or trashing a home. They were simply doing what most citizens would probably have wanted them to do. The state judge upheld the Flippo search in a terse paragraph did not quite say all this, but the foregoing analysis is based on the uncontested facts of the case. Before reversing the lower court's judgment, the Supreme Court should have explained why these uncontested facts did not suffice to uphold the decision below. Instead, the justices brusquely reversed and remanded, seemingly offended that, quote, the lower court made no attempt to distinguish Mincy, unquote. This is stupid courts, you know, just being, you know, enamored of their own, you know, the great and powerful Oz has spoken mentality. Apparently, lower courts must not simply get it right, but must also talk Supreme Court talk. This is back, you know, back to my narrative. What the trial court said in its two-sentence paragraph could be construed as suggesting that Mincy was wrongly decided. Mincy rejected a general, quote, homicide crime scene, unquote, exception to the warrant requirement. And the trial judge might be read as embracing such a general exception. Well, if it's a murder, if it's a homicide, then we don't need a warrant. But here's what I say. 
But a more charitable reading of the trial court's common sense ruling is that on the facts of this homicide, a warrantless search was reasonable, even if warrantless searches might be what might well be unreasonable in some other homicides like the one in Mincy. Although the overall issue of reasonableness is not always clear cut, you know, and people, you know, may disagree in hard cases, there was, I think, more sense in the trial court's instincts than the Supreme Court could admit. Okay. The trial court approach aimed to bring the decedent, that is the, the, the wife, the dead person, into the Fourth Amendment frame. The Supreme Court, by contrast, failed to do this. Indeed, it failed even to tell us her name. This is the feminist in me. If James Flippo's consent would have made a search reasonable, as the court admitted, what about Cheryl Flippo's consent? She, too, had a lawful right to the premises, unlike perhaps the dead officer killed in Mincy's apartment. Had she been able to whisper, this is like my allusion to Hamlet, avenge me to the police before her life ended, would this have been enough? Might we infer her implied consent from her very body? Okay, so I want everyone listening to this podcast now, if I'm ever found dead, you know, I, you know, I, I consent here and now I want the cops to, you know, find the, go- the, you know, the bastard who did it to me. These questions seem outlandish when we recall that the key issue of, um, these questions seem less outlandish when we recall that the key issue of consent here is not whether persons have waived their rights, but whether search might be reasonable in light of all the signs and signals greeting the police. Final paragraphs. This brings us to the most troubling aspect of Flippo, namely the court's easy embrace of the exclusionary rule as a proper response to Fourth Amendment violations, even in cases of violent crime. Under this rule, crime victims are re-victimized when those who hurt them walk free, grinning because evidence is suppressed. Nothing in the Constitution's text, history, or structure support the exclusionary rule as the most plausible reading of the document. So it seems like you, you know, you object in some ways to this sort of uh, knee-jerk reaction that on, on the part of the court, even more so than the actual facts of the case, because you probably weren't too enamored of the previous uh, case either, because you don't like the exclusionary rule. I hate the exclusionary rule, but I want to distinguish between two things. Was the Fourth Amendment violated? And then what happens if it was? In Mincy, maybe the Fourth Amendment was violated, but I still wouldn't exclude evidence. And one way of thinking about it is what judge in her or his right mind would ever have denied a warrant on the facts of Flippo? If the cops had just phoned in and said, you know, we're at a murder crime scene and blah, 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 it's on state property and all the rest... Every judge in the world would have said, of course you have authorization to, to find this stuff. Um, there's no causation. Kind of an, an, an inevitable discovery. Inevitable discovery is exactly what they would mm-hmm. say on law and order, but they didn't say in the Supreme Court, because, and this is unanimous. But uh, even, in the, yeah. even in the prior case, though, you know, it's, I mean, I don't know all the, all the facts. You, you know it much better, but just based on your description, it sounds like what made the search unreasonable was the fact that they did it for three days. Four days, so, I think, yes. Would, R- that, ripping the place to shreds. Right, but that would go more towards whether or not the, the person who was who had their their place ripped apart would have some sort of recourse for the property damage rather than right. that, that they actually found something that was incriminating. Exactly, and and now you see why actually uh, we, we need to think about property rights and innocent people and what if when MLK is surveilled and all the rest. Exactly so. So let me just tell so you in just on inevitable. Case, really, should the should the evidence have been suppressed? It's just that, right. It's just that there would have been some additional claim, 
you know, yeah, a- a- MLK, they don't, he's not guilty of a crime, but they're, in, they're surveilling him. They're, they're recording his every move. And, and that's a huge invasion of his privacy. Um, right. the, the, yes. the earlier case would in some ways be more interesting if they didn't find any evidence. Right. <laughs> so then that person would have had, you know, no, w- would be innocent. Right. And would have, you know, no, no recourse for all this damage that was done to them. That's why I'm saying no to exclusion and yes to tort lawsuits, you mm-hmm. see, for, for innocent people. But just on, let's just go back one last uh, time to this inevitable discovery point. Here's what I say. Exclusion is said by the court merely to restore the status quo ante, to prevent government from profiting from its own wrong. Had the government not unconstitutionally intruded, the argument goes, the evidence never would have come to light, so it should be suppressed. But this argument fails both normatively and factually. Normatively, society should never return stolen goods to a thief. Even if you find the stolen goods, you know, in an unconstitutional search, you don't give them back to the thief. You just don't. Rather, the government should and does restore these goods to the rightful owner, even if the government found them in an unconstitutional search. If the government found a kidnap victim, it would never give her back to her captor. It may retain illegal drugs and other contraband taken from drug dealers. And likewise, it need not forego the evidentiary fruits to which it has a legal right. As a general matter, the public has a right to every man's evidence. That's a very famous you know, proposition of law. Factually, and here we return to Flippo, exclusion often occurs even when the government clearly would have found the evidence anyway. Assume for argument's sake that a warrant was required on the facts of Flippo. What magistrate in the world would have denied such a request? Wouldn't a warrant he have automatically issued? And if so, wouldn't the cops have found the photos anyway? How then is exclusion proper? And then in italics, where's the causation? Doc has never answered or even asked this question. They do ask it on law and order, you know, because they need to do it for kind of narrative purposes. But the Supreme Court has been crappy in understanding the full logic of inevitable discovery, which means the following. Whenever you have probable cause, the government has probable cause, they could have gotten a warrant. And so even if they should have gotten one but didn't, they you know, they would have gotten one. They could have gotten one because they had probable cause. But doctrine doesn't actually. There's no Supreme Court case that says that at all with any clarity. And law and order, that's what they do, but they don't clearly do that on the Supreme Court. And and Flippa was a wonderful example. There was surely cause to investigate the murder scene, probable cause. They didn't call a judge and get a warrant because they didn't think they needed one because it's a state property cabin. He's been invited in. It's hot pursuit. It's 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 a murder in progress. And been told, oh, someone broke in. He might be coming back. You know, we might be, might be looking for some. I honestly invite our audience to just listen again to my un- description of the uncontested facts of the case and ask yourself, you know, if you'd ever seen this on television or something when you thought the cops are misbehaving here. Of course not. So um, there's a lot more to talk about in this case. Uh, for example, you know, there's we talked a little bit about DNA, but of course the DNA here didn't actually match to the accused so that's sort of interesting um yes. and, we, and we can also talk about some of the surveillance that went on uh yes. because some of it was not just some of it was by the public some of it was private what's the difference um, lots of stuff still that we haven't explored andy yes and then there's some interesting um comments that 
the, that the defense attorney made uh, for the def- for this gentleman um, about uh, don't tell me anything, you know, or this, this kind of. So I want to get into the role of counsel. So we've we talked very briefly about double jeopardy and non mutual offensive collateral estoppel. We've talked a little bit about the Fourth Amendment on the rights side that it requires reasonableness, but not in my view warrants or probable cause. You've, uh, you've let me uh, rant once again about the Fourth Amendment on the remedy side when it comes to the exclusionary rule. We've talked a little bit about bail. We've talked a little bit about how they're not sufficient remedies for innocent people like MLK. But yes, the Sixth Amendment, what's the role of criminal uh, defense counsel in all this? We haven't talked about. And there are lots more Fourth Amendment issues to be explored, Andy. And so you know what that means. That means more, uh, another two-parter. More next week. <laughs> Uh, you know what that means, Andy? That means double jeopardy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Where the scores can really change. Okay. okay. All right. So so tune in next week for more <laughs> for more of this. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> 